This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Miscellany of Men by G. K. Chesterton. Section 5 The Hypothetical Householder. We have read of some celebrated philosopher who was so absent-minded that he paid a call at his own house. My own absent-mindedness is extreme, and my philosophy, of course, is the marvel of men and angels. But I never quite managed to be so absent-minded as that. Some yards, at least from my own door, something vaguely familiar has always caught my eye, and thus the joke has been spoiled. Of course, I have quite constantly walked into another man's house, thinking it was my own house. My visits became almost monotonous. But walking into my own house and thinking it was another man's house is a flight of poetic detachment still beyond me. Something of the sensations that such an absent-minded man must feel, I really felt the other day. And very pleasant sensations they were. The best parts of every proper romance are the first chapter and the last chapter, and to knock at a strange door and find a nice wife would be to concentrate the beginning and the end of all romance. Mine was a milder and slighter experience, but its thrill was of the same kind, for I strolled through a place I had imagined quite virgin and unvisited as far as I was concerned and I suddenly found I was treading in my own footprints, and the footprints were nearly twenty years old. It was one of those stretches of country which always suggests an almost unnatural decay, thickets and heaths that have grown out of what were once great gardens. Garden flowers still grow there as wild flowers, as it says in some good poetic couplet which I forget and there is something singularly romantic and disastrous about seeing things that were so long a human property and care fighting for their own hand in the thicket. One almost expects to find a decayed dog kennel with the dog evolved into a wolf. This desolate garden land has been even in my youth scrappily planned out for building. The half-built or empty houses had appeared quite threateningly on the edge of this heath even when I walked over it years ago, and almost as a boy. I was astonished that the building had gone no further. I suppose somebody went bankrupt and somebody else disliked building. But I remember, especially along one side of this tangle or coppice, that there had once been a row of half-built houses. The brick of which they were built was a sort of plain pink. Everything else was a blinding white. The houses smoked with white dust and white sawdust, and on many of the windows were rubbed those round rough discs of white which always delighted me as a child. They looked like the white eyes of some blind giant. I could see the crude parched pink and white villas still though I had not thought at all of them for a quarter of my life, and had not thought much of them even when I saw them. Then I was an idle but eager youth walking out from London. Now I was a most reluctantly busy middle-aged person coming in from the country. 
Youth, I think, seems farther off than childhood, for it made itself more of a secret. Like a prenatal picture, distant, tiny, and quite distinct, I saw this heath on which I stood, and I looked round for the string of bright half-baked villas. They still stood there, but they were quite russet and weather-stained, as if they had stood for centuries. I remembered exactly what I had done on that day long ago. I had half slid on a miry descent. It was still there. A little lower I had knocked off the top of a thistle. The thistles had not been discouraged, but were still growing. I recalled it because I had wondered why one knocks off the tops of thistles, and then I had thought of Tarquin, and then I had recited most of Macaulay's Virginia to myself, for I was young. And then I came to a tattered edge, where the very tuft had whitened with the sawdust and brick dust from the new row of houses, and two or three green stars of dock and thistle grew spasmodically about the blinding road. I remembered how I had walked up this new, one-sided street all those years ago, and I remembered what I had thought. I thought that this red and white glaring terrace at noon was really more creepy and more loathsome than a glimmering churchyard at midnight. The churchyard could only be full of the ghosts of the dead, but these houses were full of the ghosts of the unborn. And a man can never find a home in the future as he can find it in the past. I was always fascinated by that medieval notion of erecting a rudely carpentered stage in the street and acting on it a miracle play of the Holy Family or the Last Judgment. And I thought to myself that each of these glaring, gaping, new jerry-built boxes was indeed a rickety stage erected for the acting of a real miracle play. That human family that is almost the Holy One, and that human death that is near to the Last Judgment. For some foolish reason, the last house but one in that imperfect row especially haunted me with its hollow grin and empty window eyes. Something in the shape of this brick and mortar skeleton was attractive, and there being no working men about, I strolled into it for curiosity and solitude. I gave, with all the sky-deep gravity of youth, a benediction upon the man who was going to live there. I even remember that for the convenience of meditation I called him James Harrogate. As I reflected, it crawled back into my memory that I had mildly played the fool in that house on that distant day. I had some red chalk in my pocket, I think, and I wrote things on the unpapered plaster walls, things addressed to Mr. Harrogate. A dim memory told me that I had written up in what I supposed to be the dining room. James Harrogate, thank God for meat, then eat and eat, and eat and eat, or something of that kind. I faintly feel that some longer lyric was scrawled on the walls of what looked like a bedroom, something beginning, When laying what you call your head, O Harrogate, upon your bed, and there all my memory dislimbs and decays but I could still see quite vividly the plain plastered walls and rude irregular writing and the places where the red chalk broke. I could see them, I mean, in memory, for when I came down that road again, 
after a sixth of a century, the house was very different. I had seen it before noon, and now I found it in the dusk. But its windows glowed with lights of many artificial sorts. One of its low square windows stood open. From this there escaped up the road a stream of lamplight and a stream of singing. Some sort of girl, at least, was standing at some sort of piano and singing a song of healthy sentimentalism in that house where long ago my blessing had died on the wind and my poems been covered up by the wallpaper. I stood outside that lamplit house at dusk, full of those thoughts that I shall never express if I live to be a million, any better than I express them in red chalk upon the wall. But after I had hovered a little and was about to withdraw, a mad impulse seized me. I rang a bell. I said in distinct accents to a very smart suburban maid, Does Mr. James Harrogate live here? She said he didn't but that she would inquire in case I was looking for him in the neighborhood. But I excused her from such exertion. I had one moment's impulse to look for him all over the world, and then decided not to look for him at all. THE PRIEST OF SPRING The sun has strengthened and the air softened just before Easter Day but it is a troubled brightness which has a breath not only of novelty but of revolution. There are two great armies of the human intellect who will fight till the end on this vital point, whether Easter is to be congratulated on fitting in with the spring or the spring on fitting in with Easter. The only two things that can satisfy the soul are a person and a story, and even a story must be about a person. There are indeed very voluptuous appetites and enjoyments in mere abstractions like mathematics, logic, or chess, but these mere pleasures of the mind are like mere pleasures of the body. That is, they are mere pleasures, though they may be gigantic pleasures. They can never, by a mere increase of themselves, amount to happiness. A man just about to be hanged may enjoy his breakfast, especially if it be his favorite breakfast, and in the same way he may enjoy an argument with the chaplain about heresy, especially if it is his favorite heresy. But whether he can enjoy either of them does not depend on either of them. It depends upon his spiritual attitude towards a subsequent event, and that event is really interesting to the soul because it is the end of a story and, as some hold, the end of a person. Now it is this simple truth which, like many others, is too simple for our scientists to see. This is where they go wrong, not only about true religion, but about false religions too, so that their account of mythology is more mythical than the myth itself. I do not confine myself to saying that they are quite incorrect when they state, for instance, that Christ was a legend of dying and reviving vegetation, like Adonis of Persephone. I say that even if Adonis was a god of vegetation, they've got the whole notion of him wrong. Nobody, to begin with, is sufficiently interested in decaying vegetables as such to make any particular mystery or disguise about them, and certainly not enough to disguise them under the image of a very handsome young man, which is a vastly more interesting thing. 
If Adonis was connected with the fall of leaves in autumn and the return of flowers in spring, the process of thought was quite different. It is a process of thought which springs up spontaneously in all children and young artists. It springs up spontaneously in all healthy societies. It is very difficult to explain in a diseased society. The brain of man is subject to short and strange snatches of sleep. A cloud seals the city of reason or rests upon the sea of imagination. A dream that darkens as much whether it is a nightmare of atheism or a daydream of idolatry. And just as we have all sprung from sleep with a start and found ourselves saying some sentence that has no meaning, save in the mad tongues of the midnight, so the human mind starts from its trances of stupidity with some complete phrase upon its lips, a complete phrase which is a complete folly. Unfortunately, it is not like the dream sentence, generally forgotten in the putting on of boots or the putting in of breakfast. This senseless aphorism invented when man's mind was asleep still hangs on his tongue and entangles all his relations to rational and daylight things. All our controversies are confused by certain kinds of phrases which are not merely untrue but were always unmeaning, which are not merely inapplicable but were always intrinsically useless. We recognize them whenever a man talks of the survival of the fittest, meaning only the survival of the survivors, or wherever a man says that the rich have a stake in the country as if the poor could not suffer from misgovernment or military defeat, or where a man talks about going on towards progress, which only means going on towards going on or where a man talks about government by the wise few, as if they could be picked out by their pantaloons. The wise few must mean either the few whom the foolish think wise, or the very foolish who think themselves wise. There is one piece of nonsense that modern people still find themselves saying, even after they are more or less awake, by which I am particularly irritated. It arose in the popularized science of the 19th century, especially in connection with the study of myths and religions. The fragment of gibberish to which I refer generally takes the form of saying, This god or hero really represents the sun. Or Apollo killing the python means that the summer drives out the winter. Or the king dying in a western battle is a symbol of the sun setting in the west. Now, I should really have thought that even the skeptical professors, whose skulls are as shallow as frying pans, might have reflected that human beings never think or feel like this. Consider what is involved in this supposition. It presumes that primitive man went out for a walk and saw with great interest a big burning spot on the sky. Then he said to primitive woman, My dear, we had better keep this quiet. We mustn't let it get about. The children and the slaves are so very sharp. They might discover the sun any day, unless we are very careful, so we won't call it the sun. But I will draw a picture of a man killing a snake, and whenever I do that you will know what I mean. The sun doesn't look at all like a man killing a snake, so nobody can possibly know. It will be a little secret between us, 
and while the slaves and the children fancy i am quite excited with a grand tale of a writhing dragon and a wrestling demigod i shall really mean this delicious little discovery that there is a round yellow disc up in the air one does not need to know much mythology to know that this is a myth it is commonly called the solar myth quite plainly of course the case was just the other way the god was never a symbol or a hieroglyph representing the sun the sun was a hieroglyph representing the god Primitive man, with whom my friend Dombey is no doubt well acquainted, went out with his head full of gods and heroes, because that is the chief use of having a head. Then he saw the sun in some glorious crisis of the dominance of noon on the distress of nightfall, and he said, That is how the face of a god would shine when he had slain the dragon, or that is how the whole world would bleed to westward if the god were slain at last. No human being was ever really so unnatural as to worship nature. No man, however indulgent as I am, to corpulency even worshipped a man round as the sun or a woman round as the moon. No man, however attracted to an artistic attenuation, ever really believed that the dryad was as lean and stiff as the tree. We human beings have never worshipped nature and indeed the reason is very simple. It is that all human beings are superhuman beings. We have printed our own image upon nature, as God has printed his image upon us. We have told the enormous sun to stand still, and have fixed him on our shields, caring no more for a star than for a starfish. And when there were powers of nature, we could not for the time control we have conceived great beings in human shape controlling them. Jupiter does not mean thunder. Thunder means the march and victory of Jupiter. Neptune does not mean the sea. The sea is his, and he made it. In other words, what the savage really said about the sea was, only my fetish mumbo could raise such mountains out of mere water. What the savage really said about the sun was, only my great-great-grandfather Jumbo deserve such a blazing crown about all these myths my own position is utterly and even sadly simple i say you cannot really understand any myths till you have found that one of them is not a myth turn-up ghosts mean nothing if there are no real ghosts forged banknotes mean nothing if there are no real banknotes heathen gods mean nothing and must always mean nothing to those of us that deny the Christian God. When once a God is admitted, even a false God, the cosmos begin to know its place, which is the second place. When once it is the real God, the cosmos falls down before him, offering flowers in spring as flames in winter. My love is like a red, red rose, does not mean that the poet is praising roses under the allegory of a young lady. My love is an arbitress does not mean that the author was a botanist so pleased with a particular arbutus tree that he said he loved it. Who art the moon and regent of my sky does not mean that Juliet invented Romeo to account for the roundness of the moon. Christ is the son of Easter does not mean that the worshipper is praising the sun under the emblem of Christ. 
goddess or god can clothe themselves with spring or summer but the body is more than raiment religion almost takes disdainfully the dress of nature and indeed christianity has done as well with the snows of christmas as with the snowdrops of spring and when i look across the sunstruck fields i know in my inmost bones that my joy is not solely in the spring for spring alone being always returning would be always sad there is somebody or something walking there to be crowned with flowers and my pleasure is in some promise yet possible and in the resurrection of the dead the real journalist our age which has boasted of realism will fail chiefly through lack of reality never i fancy has there been so grave and startling a divorce between the real way a thing is done and the look of it when it is done i take the nearest and most tropical instance to hand a newspaper nothing looks more neat and regular than a newspaper with its parallel columns its mechanical printing its detailed facts and figures its responsible polysyllabic leading articles nothing as a matter of fact goes every night through more agonies of adventure more hairbreadth escapes desperate expedients crucial consuls random compromises or barely averted catastrophes seen from the outside it seems to come round as automatically as the clock and as silently as the dawn seen from the inside it gives all its organizers a gasp of relief every morning to see that it has come out at all that it has come out without the leading article upside down or the pope congratulated on discovering the north pole i will give an instance merely to illustrate my thesis of unreality from the paper that i know best here is a simple story a little episode in the life of a journalist which may be amusing and instructive the tale of how i made a great mistake in quotation there are really two stories the story as seen from the outside by a man reading the paper and the story seen from the inside by the journalist shouting and telephoning and taking notes in shorthand through the night this is the outside story and it reads like a dreadful quarrel the notorious g k chesterton a reactionary torquemada whose one gloomy pleasure was in the defence of orthodoxy and the pursuit of heretics long calculated and at last launched a denunciation of a brilliant leader of the new theology which he hated with all the furnace of his fanatic soul in this document chesterton darkly deliberately and not having the fear of god before his eyes asserted that shakespeare wrote the line that reads its old fantastic root so high this he said because he had been kept in ignorance by priests or perhaps because he thought craftily that none of his dupes could discover a curious and forgotten rhyme called elegy in a country churchyard anyhow that orthodox gentleman made a howling error and received some twenty-five letters and postcards from kind correspondents who pointed out the mistake but the odd thing is that scarcely any of them could conceive that it was a mistake the first wrote in the tone of one wearied of epigrams and cried 
what is the joke now? Another professed and practiced for all I know, God help him, that he had read through all Shakespeare and failed to find the line. A third wrote in a sort of moral distress, asking, as in confidence, if Gray was really a plagiarist. They were a noble collection, but they all subtly assumed an element of leisure and exactitude in the recipient's profession and character, which is far from the truth. Let us pass on to the next act of the external tragedy. In Monday's issue of the same paper appeared a letter from the same culprit. He ingenuously confessed that the line did not belong to Shakespeare, but to a poet whom he called Gray, G-R-E-Y, which was another cropper or whopper. This strange and illiterate outbreak was printed by the editor with a justly scornful title, Mr. Chesterton, quote, explains, unquote. Any man reading the paper at breakfast saw at once the meaning of the sarcastic quotation marks. They meant, of course, here is a man who doesn't know G-R-A-Y from Shakespeare. He tries to patch it up, and he can't even spell G-R-A-Y. And that is what he calls an explanation. That is the perfectly natural inference of the reader from the letter, the mistake, and the headline, as seen from the outside. The falsehood was serious. The editorial rebuke was serious. The stern editor and the somber, baffled contributor confront each other as the curtain falls. And now I will tell you exactly what really happened. It is honestly rather amusing. It is a story of what journals and journalists really are. A monstrous, lazy man lives in South Bucks, partly by writing a column in the Saturday Daily News. At the time he usually writes it, which is always at the last moment, his house is unexpectedly invaded by infants of all shapes and sizes. His secretary is called away, and he has to cope with the invading pygmies. Playing with children is a glorious thing, but the journalist in question has never understood why it was considered a soothing or idyllic one. It reminds him not of watering little budding flowers, but of wrestling for hours with gigantic angels and devils. Moral problems of the most monstrous complexity besiege him incessantly. He has to decide before the awful eyes of innocence whether, when a sister has knocked down a brother's bricks in revenge for the brother's having taken two sweets out of his turn, it is endurable that the brother should retaliate by scribbling on the sister's picture book, and whether such conduct does not justify the sister in blowing out the brother's unlawfully lighted match. Just as he is solving this problem upon principles of the highest morality, it occurs to him suddenly that he has not written his Saturday article, and that there is only about an hour to do it in. He wildly calls to somebody, probably the gardener, to telephone to somewhere for a messenger. He barricades himself in another room and tears his hair, wondering what on earth he shall write about. A drumming of fists on the door outside and a cheerful bellowing encourage and clarify his thoughts, and he is able to observe some newspapers and circulars and wrappers lying on the table. One is a dingy book catalogue, the second is a shiny pamphlet about petrol, the third is a paper called the Christian Commonwealth. 
He opens it anyhow and sees in the middle of a page a sentence with which he honestly disagrees. It says that the sense of beauty in nature is a new thing hardly felt before Wordsworth. A stream of images and pictures pour through his head like skies chasing each other or forests running by. Not felt before Wordsworth, he thinks. But oh, this won't do. Bare ruined choirs where the late sweet birds sang, night's candles are burnt out, glowed with living sapphires, leaving their moon-loved maze, antique roots fantastic, antique roots rigged high. What is it in as you like it? He sits down desperately. The messenger rings at the bell. The children drum on the door. The servants run up from time to time to say the messenger is getting bored, and the pencil staggers along making the world a present of fifteen hundred unimportant words, and making Shakespeare a present of a portion of Gray's elegy, putting fantastic roots wreathed high instead of antique roots peep out. Then the journalist sends off his copy and turns his attention to the enigma of whether a brother should commandeer a sister's necklace because the sister pinched him at Littlehampton. That is the first scene. That is how an article is really written. The scene now changes to the newspaper office. The writer of the article has discovered his mistake and wants to correct it by the next day, but the next day is Sunday. He cannot post a letter, so he rings up the paper and dictates a letter by telephone. He leaves the title to his friends at the other end. He knows that they can spell Gray, G-R-A-Y, as no doubt they can, but the letter is put down by journalistic custom in a pencil scribble, and the vowels may well be doubtful. The friend writes at the top of the letter, G.K.C. explains, putting the initials in quotation marks. The next man passing it on for press is bored with these initials. I am with him there, and crosses them out, substituting with austere civility, Mr. Chesterton explains, enclosed in quotes. But, and now he hears the iron laughter of the fates, or the blind bolt is about to fall, but he neglects to cross out the second quote, as we call it, and it goes up to press with a quote between the last words. Another quotation mark at the end explains was the work of one merry moment for the printers upstairs, so the inverted commas were lifted entirely off one word onto the other, and a totally innocent title suddenly turned into a blasting sneer. But that would have mattered nothing so far, for there was nothing to sneer at. In the same dark hour, however, there was a printer, who was, I suppose, so devoted to this government, that he could think of no Gray, G-R-A-Y, but Sir Edward Gray, G-R-E-Y. He spelt it, G-R-E-Y, by a mere misprint, and the whole tale was complete. First blunder, second blunder, and final condemnation. That is a little tale of journalism, as it is. If you call it egotistic and ask what is the use of it, I think I could tell you. You might remember it when next some ordinary young workman is going to be hanged by the neck on circumstantial evidence. End of section 5